to The Forbes Factor, featuring celebrity TV host, million-dollar entrepreneur, and renowned health and fitness superstar, Forbes Riley, a familiar face from TV, as well as one of today's most sought-after female motivational speakers today. You'll connect with some of the top experts in health and fitness, business, and personal development, as well as some surprise celebrities, all sharing their insight, tips, and tricks to finding true happiness. Now, here's your host, Forbes Riley. Everybody, welcome to the Forbes Factor. It is one of my favorite hours of the week, and I'm, you know, I'm very excited. One of my favorite things to do in life, and for those of you who know me, is to be an actress. I've been an actress since I can remember. And in fact, I wasn't always an actress. It's not really fair. I always wanted to be an actress. I was in high school and I was always given the part of townsperson number three or chorus. I got a lot of those. I never got any of the leads growing up and I was miserable. I was an ugly little girl at some point. I know I've told that story over and over again. And I truly believed I had something special inside of me. And it wasn't until I got to college that I had a um, a very interesting thing happen. I did a small play, which I co-starred in, and it was beautiful. It was pretty amazing to have the lead in a, even a small play. And my senior year, I auditioned for the big Shakespearean play, and I go to the call board hoping to see my name as townsperson or chorus, and it's not there. And I looked, and I thought to myself, this is my senior year of college. I'm going to go off to be a lawyer, do what my parents thought I should do, leave all those dreams. And then I looked to the very top to see who got Shakespeare's largest female role called Rosalind. And I look up at the top and dang, there's my name. And I went to the professor who was directing this, who was the drama coach, who I knew. And I said, excuse me, but um, I think there might be a problem. I don't even know if I could do this, but that's me. And he's like, I know that's you. He said, you're my ideal Rosalind. He said, "I, I, I couldn't have thought of anyone better. And I'm like, Really? Why? And he told me all of these things about me. And you have to remember growing up as a girl, most people had looked at me on the outside and they looked at my, my nose, which was broken, or my teeth, which were crooked, or my thighs, which were too, whatever it was that about me. The crazy thing about the man looking across the table from me, David Richmond, is that he couldn't see me because he was 100% legally blind. And when he told me who I really was, I got a sense of that I think he's right. And I called my parents. And I said, I'm sorry for the investment that we've all made. We're probably going to pay this off forever, this private education. We're going to go be an actress. And I and my parents said, we love you. Go do what you want. We can't help you. And I moved into New York City, and I landed the lead, my ver- the lead role in the very first film project I ever auditioned for. Many of you know it as Splatter University, where the school colors are blood red, still a cult classic. And I meandered and pursued this dream and did lots of soap operas in, in New York and LA. And along the way, the thing that I cherish the most is my training. From Uta Hagen to Herbert Berghoff to Sandy Meisner, I studied with some of the best there ever was. And then I got to LA. LA is a funny animal about you can study, you can study scene study class, or you could go to what was one of the premier acting studios ever, direct, created by a gentleman who in fact won an Oscar as a director of a movie. Um, and his name was Milton Casales. And he had a very unique philosophy about how he ran his classes. I met unbelievable celebrities. I'm still friends with so many of them. We all went through so much. And one of them was this very handsome gentleman. Yeah, you look at him and go, oh, I watched you. I know you. I saw you on General Hospital. And now you're all, yeah, yes. And he's also Greek, which I got to tell you, when I was 20 years old and I got to go to Greece and Mykonos, 
one of my favorite countries. There is something about Greek men. And as I bring him to the stage, and I'm totally embarrassing him. <laughs> Am I embarrassing you yet? Mr. Teo Penglis, no, no, no. Welcome to my stage, my friend. How are oh, thank you? you? Thank you. You know, when you mentioned Milton, uh, you have to know that I started those classes with him. I came from New York. I started with him in New York, and he asked me to be his assistant. And so we came to Beverly Hills Playhouse together, and we started it. And I would interview the actors who would come into the class. I would take care of the money situation, the booking of the scenes, telling actors how to dress. So that was the beginnings of classes. Oh, do you remember? What year was that? 1974, I think, something like that. Oh, my God. I had no idea. Oh, my gosh. Now, did you grow up in New York? Well, I well, I grew up first in Sydney, Australia, and then I went to New York when I was 21, and then I was in and out of New York for 10 years. But it was, you know, Milton who started me off because he wanted me to be his assistant because he was Elia Kazan's assistant. So when he asked me and I said no in the beginning because I didn't like him very much, I thought it was one Greek to another. I thought the ego was so prominent that I thought I couldn't, I couldn't listen to this man. And I was looking for a mentor. But listen, he kind of came down a few steps and said, listen, I want you to come with me. Do you understand what it means to be, be the assistant to a director who is the assistant to a major director like Elia Kazan? And so that helped me through and because he thought I was a dilettante in the beginning, you know, I didn't even know what the word meant. And so <laughs> then when I saw that uh, a dabble in the arts, I thought, oh, this is not going to be good. So I just had that appearance. It, you know, the Greek men have a certain arrogance when you meet them until they break down a little bit and they trust you. But yes, so that arrogance came through and Milton thought, oh, this is a guy who's going to going to be very superficial and won't make it in the business. And so I became one of his most successful students. And so, you know, it was it was a wonderful experience. And I was there, you know, the day he died. Oh. So it's, uh, it was a big loss for all of us. And to see, you know, how many actors came out of that workshop. Yes, yes. He, uh, he fostered a very exciting, amazing environment. And I feel blessed. I was there for about four or five years and I just loved it. You know, you said to me when you, you, you sent me a note, and you said, you know, when I look in the mirror, I see men with different faces. When you say that, what does that mean for you? Well, I think one of the reasons why I've played parts that, like in Mission Impossible, playing Nicholas Black, where I, I did all the disguises uh, and easily, um, doing Days of Our Lives and playing two characters, and one was disguising all the time. So I thought, I wonder why why those characters came my way. Um, mm. How do you adapt to somebody who's different from the core of a character you're already established? So it's, it, to me, it's we're multifaceted people in life. If we explore those areas, some people just know something about themselves, but they don't get down to where they really are a complex creature that's looking to to love and be loved and, and to embrace and explore the world with a kind of curiosity and the reason why they're here. That's a very important premise because there is a secret <clears throat> that we're born with that we have to unravel. And that secret becomes unraveling the person, the, the soul that you are, and you find out you are many facets of one person. And by 
the associations you have in life and the experiences only enhances those personalities. So that's why when I look in the mirror, I think it's because I've seen so many different sides of myself. Well, such a, so why acting for you? What is it that drew you to that? Because I'm going to say that traveling, you know, when I was 21, I traveled in Europe and all the Australians that I met were traveling for two years because it was such a long way to go. Very daring. Did your parents, were they very supportive of you leaving home and pursuing this dream? No, no, no. They thought I was going to embarrass the whole family. They had no idea what I was doing. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I just wanted to leave the Greek society. I'd had enough of it by the time I was 21. And when I went to New York, of course, what's the harder city to exist and make yourself successful is New York. So I started from the bottom with 180 bucks in my pocket. Um, Being an actor, I didn't know then. It wasn't until um, a Greek actor who was in The Unsickable Molly Brown with Debbie Reynolds, uh, Vasily Lambrinos, who played the prince, who saw me at a party, came over because he knew I was Greek, and that's how it started. And he took me to a class, and the teacher thought I was terrible, that I shouldn't be an actor. (laughs) Yes, that was embarrassing, that moment. And and so then after that, um, I was a bit confused. I went back home to Australia because I was a diplomat. I was in the uh, oh. I was an immigration official, and so that's why I took a year's absence. And then when I went back, I realized Australia wasn't my kind of bag, and so I decided to go back to New York. And then I went into classes, and that's when I met Milton, who wouldn't let me in the class. I went <laughs> for six months. I even chased him down Broadway, telling him that he's, he was wrong because I had no other outlet. I thought, what am I going to do? I can't go back to failure. This time I've got to make something. I've got to go back with some money because, you know, let's face it, money talks. <laughs> so, you know, if you make money, it means you're a success. So, uh, he, you know, I, I fought for the position and then he gave me a trial for three months and I beat him out of it. And so... Um, you know, it was a great relationship. We we got along very well. I think part of it was that I loved to cook. So he realized that he had an assistant who could cook for him when he was working late hours, you know. Uh, when we did the play P.S. Your Cat is Dead and with Sal Minio and Keir DeLay, and uh, that night uh, Keir DeLay and Sal wanted to, me to make a Greek lemon soup while they were directing uh, with Milton, and so I did. And then that was the night that Keir... Uh, that uh, went home and then Sal had his soup and then he was murdered that night. So that was a real tragedy uh, for us. Um, So, you know, I I always remember what Greek soup, you know, because it was Um, the night I fed Sal Minio's last meal. And so, um, you know, so Milton and I went through quite a bit and um, he even gave me the reins to go up to San Francisco and put new actors into the play and direct them myself. So um, I remember there was one actor that I had to put in, and he said to me, when I gave him the direction, he said to me, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, well, why don't you listen? Well, and then I suddenly realized I had a mouth. And I said, and it got him. You know, you learn about communication, and I hit him right on the nose with that, and he listened. So that was another, you know how you find experiences give you steps? Yes. So that was one of them. That was where I suddenly thought, I'm breaking new ground. I, how old do you think you were at that time? I was 27. Mm. Is, there, is there something that you would tell your younger self, given all the experiences that you've had now, that might have made your life a little easier? 
Well, I am hard on myself because I think the teachers that I had from Stellar Adler to um, Meisner to, of course, Kitzel, um Meritasi, was that they're all perfectionists. You know, they you didn't have a lot of choices. You know, it's not good or bad. It has to be magnificent. It has to be, you know, superlatives, you know. And so I was hard on myself. But in, in a way, a discipline went out. That's the one thing about me and the one thing I don't like about today is that people are not disciplined enough. Where did that come from for you? I think it came from Stella Adler more than mm-hmm. anybody. I mean, if you were ever late in her class, she would dismiss you violently. I mean, you would be so scared to go back into the class. So she would admonish you in front of everybody. So, uh, and then, of course, Milton, um, because he helped me uh, find who I was and use that uh, in, in, in my self-confidence on, on being an example of his teaching. He always wanted to know that when you went out there to work that you were an example of his teaching. And mm. so I, I thought that was important. So, I, of course, I wanted to win and... And then, you know, I got a few nominations, and I remember that made him very proud. So occasionally I would go back to class because I'd studied with him on and off for 40 years. So I would go in and out of the class. And, you know, he brought some extraordinary people in the class, from Cary Grant to Peter Finch to John Cassavetes, Gina Rollins. And, you know, these were all great examples. And I'll tell you a quick story of... of um, uh, Sunset Boulevard, Milton came to the class and said that the actress from Sunset Boulevard, now I'm trying to remember what the name was, I'm having a moment, um, uh, Sunset Boulevard um, with William Holden. Um, the older woman? Yes, you know, the one who's the star. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking as well. It'll come to me in a second. Anyway, she, you know, she was uh, a mistress of also uh, Kennedy's father. And um, Milton said, uh, would you meet her at the front? She's going to come in a limousine and she's going to lecture to the class for an hour. And when she arrived, she said, honey, and she looked me up and down as those actresses did. She says, could you carry me in? Because I can't really walk that well. So the Gloria Swanson? Gloria Swanson. So Gloria Swanson. I carried Gloria Swanson into the class. The curtains were drawn. I sat her in a chair. The curtains opened, standing ovation. She spoke about her years of Hollywood. An hour later, the curtains closed. I picked her up in my arms, took her to the limousine, and off she went. So it was like, you know, I've had a few of those experiences with some of those great actors from the past, even John Gilgood, that they're just, just Put something, you know, even when I had tea with Jacqueline Kennedy, even that to me was a bit, was something because we talked about something other than acting. It was about the art world. And so I studied the art world for a while there, which in my 20s were that decade where you put all those seeds in. So I did the fashion, I did the art world, I did the acting, I did the cooking, and all of that paid off later in my life. So that I became a whole character. And so therefore that ha- helps me as an actor when you know what ingredients goes for what, for what particular character you're playing. You know, I've had a lot of lives as well. And I, I don't act at the moment. I don't go to class. I'm living in Florida. 
Uh, although I did just star in a movie, that's not true. I am full circle. I just finished playing the bad girl in a very in a feature film, and I'm very happy to not completely give that side of my world up. But as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking back on those memories, ah, and I'm thinking about the late late nights of endless rehearsals of how we just would delve into that and how much was required of you to just explore and play. Do you know? I'm just thinking how blessed we were to be make believe to enjoy that part of our lives, to be stretching our artistic muscles. Who does that? And, and, you know, you go to school to learn and you sit in a room and you take tests and you graduate and you get a job and you live your life. I know that I'm who I am because I sat in acting classes because we were art, we were artists. I miss that little uh, looking at you. I'm like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's the great reward that we invested in that paid off. I don't think, you know, nothing comes easily. And if it does, it doesn't last. I found yeah. the reason why I have longevity uh, with what I do is because I invested a lot of my life. It's not just about how do you become your whole person. And journeying and writing are two of the elements I discovered when I could afford to do it. Um, you know, I've been to Egypt 14 times. I've done Greece over 20 times, usually the same um, I like the Middle East. It's dangerous at times, but at the same time, you know, life is dangerous. And so uh, I like to find out what my metal's about. And so uh, how do you outdo someone who's trying to be a crook? And how do you pick those when you sharpen those tools as you go along in life? You can pick the crook up very quickly by the tone, by the way they operate. You can right. see the facade, you know, when they're playing. And if you're still you just stand still and you listen, they'll give away their secrets, you know, and so, you know, you protect yourself that way. But, you know, journeying is 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 important because you're learning about other cultures, you're learning about, uh, you know, how you don't point fingers anymore because you had a chance to explore how other people live. I get it. That's crazy. All right, so talk to me about you also writing, which I just love. And so one of your books is Seducing Celebrities, mm. One Meal at a Time. Yes, that's come. That's being reissued in the next month or so on a soft cover. Um, my manager said to me, uh, "Why don't you write do a cookbook? You're always talking about cooking for people." So right. I think because nutrition is important to keeping your youth and your mind all that, you know. So I've been feeding myself well uh, since I could afford to, and so um, I thought, well, you know, I've had quite a few celebrities here, so why don't I? Um, imagine for those who I've worked with that I didn't uh, cook for and for those who I did cook for. So I put a book together with 75 recipes and a lot of stories from, um, from uh, I would suppose, from Telly Savalas to, to um, uh, <coughs> Jacqueline Kennedy to um, Shirley MacLaine to mm. Barbara Streisand to Omar Sharif. Uh, so I put together this book and I told them along with the story so that you get a double whammy. It's not just about cooking. And so I s sat in my head for six months. And uh, when I came to the Greek sweets, my sisters do that well, so I would call Australia. I said, okay, okay girls, you remember all those wonderful sweets you used to do when we were growing up? Give me some recipes. And so I included those because my parents came from an island called Castellorizo, which is one of the Dodecanese islands in Greece. And so they came with their recipes in Australia and they remained because they were classic. So, you know, I 
You know, there's nothing more satisfying than seeing a group of people around your table who by one o'clock in the morning still don't want to leave because it becomes the watering hole and they love telling stories. Um, uh, you know, uh, and the I, food, and the food, if the food is well, the great. Food, you know, yeah. no one's ever been sick uh, with my food. So, uh, <laughs> yes, I mean, I go to a lot of trouble to prepare. I mean, you have to prepare the atmosphere. You've got to prepare you know, the flowers, everything. Because you want, when people come into your house, you want them to go. <gasps> so you capture them with your imagination, right? And then you're, the warmth of the place, the music, <clears throat> the flowers that sometimes look like you've just entered a funeral. But, you know, I love having flowers because it's good feng shui as well. Um, and Doris Roberts used to sit at the head of the table all the time. I love Doris. <clears throat> yes, well, we met in class. I knew her for those 25 years, and she did the intro to the book. And um, she said, I said to her, Doris, you want to, you've eaten so many times at my house. Would you like to do the intro? And she oh. said, oh, darling, I don't know. What, what did you want me to say? Why don't you write and I'll sign it? I said, that's not the way it works. Take your time and write something of an evening you've had at my home. And she did, and that became the uh, introduction to the book. Oh, you're just making me smile on so many levels. I just, I love the artistry. I love the, there, there's so much about this that I'm just having a blast, you know, getting to know you that we didn't do in class. No. But I also wasn't this person back then. So I, I think I've evolved and I'm, I'm grateful that I have much more of an interest than just wanting to be an actor. Yeah, your career's um, been incredible. Thank you. It's been it's more than I could have, huh? yeah. no, more than I could have imagined. Um, and I think, you know, it's funny. I often talk about terrorist theater uh, and, you know, some of the things that Milton would do and how you had to commit. And I also talked about that one of the things, given his background in the religion that he chose, which we may or may not want to say, but it was all about the business of show. And I will tell you that one of the things that I learned very clearly, aside from greatness on stage and character development and scene study, was sending out endless amounts of headshots and phone calls and meetings and really just pushing that needle forward. And I learned that from Milton. Uh, I learned how to sell our first book when he came out with one of his books. Uh, it was the, the Dare to Dream. Dare to yes. Dream. We had to sell that book. I remember clearly the the level of promotion. And, and I thought- I was, a bestseller, New York bestseller. <laughs> I remember I was actually pretty pissed. I'm like, why am I having to do this? This is not acting. Turns out part of the best education I could have gotten. You know, it's been phenomenal. Now, talk to me about soap operas for you. What are, what are soap operas for you? Soap operas to me um, is the work I chose to do to give me the journeys that I explored in my life. They don't, you know, Mission Impossible remains for me. That was great. <clears throat> it, you know, it was, it was great because uh, you're taken seriously I don't know what it is about daytime where uh, people, I think because it plays in the day where people work, so therefore they associate you with, you know, being a dilettante in a sense, you know, what's daytime, what's soap operas, they're just those silly things. But, you know, I did a, I, I, I was hosting I think for the 15th time, I just did the Greek ball at the Beverly Wool Show and uh, with the, all the debutantes and everything. And uh, I'll never forget, that all those years, um, the people and even the men that came up shook my hand because they loved uh, Days of Our Lives. They loved watching Tony uh, because 
you know, he was not just a simple guy. He was a diabolical character. You know, he was good and bad. Whereas Andre, the other character, was just pure evil. So I enjoyed playing both of them. I think I enjoyed playing Andre more because I got away with murder. And so, <laughs> I, got a, I got away with upsetting people, which sometimes gave me great enthusiasm because I, there are some actors I met that I just wanted to disturb because they were just, the ego was just bursting. And also you get females who are divas, you know, yes. and they play the part. But it takes a lot of work to put on a serial that makes it look like, you know, the dialogue you're doing just came out of the top of your head. To me, it's fascinating. And for those of you watching, you know, soap operas are not nearly as pos as popular. When I grew up, that was what we watched. I mean, I was glued to General Hospital growing up. My mother loved all my children. Uh, I was on As the World Turns in Another World um, and didn't do a lot out in the East. I did Poor Charles. Don't ask me why. Um, there's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of work. What is the secret, you know, because nowadays I give speeches. I can I speak from one hour to three hours in front of 10,000 people. I don't think anything of it. I know the mechanics behind that. What um, are the mechanics for you? You know, one producer came and watched me struggling, learning my lines, and I had, had eight scenes back to back. And she said to me, I see you're struggling with the dialogue. This is the trick to it you do it one scene at a time. Mm. You don't look at the overall picture and say, oh, my God, I've got all this dialogue. One scene at a time. You finish one scene, you go to the next. So it's mm. a form of discipline, and it's a form of where it gives you and your muscle, which is a muscle in your brain, which helps you retain words. And, you know, when you've got speeches, and then you've got to drive them through. You know, it's like people who tell you stories that have too many bridges and you're wondering when are they going to get to the point. It's the same with soaps. You know, when I see that it's just all expository, I wear nice clothes. I, I, I add to it so that I can just drive through it. So the trick is expository things are for you to remind you what you saw the other day or for those people who didn't to to have them catch up so i learned from milton that in those phrase in in, in those passages sometimes they didn't quite uh, ex express them properly and you're going what did they just say because right. you always said there was a word in that passage they didn't understand and so the whole thing unraveled so they were just talking words so if there's something in a in a paragraph you don't quite understand it's because there's a word there that oh. you're not quite getting and so i would always look for those things for pa sometimes things are you can't learn them easily because they're badly written you have to also understand writers have to write as quickly as you've got to learn it so everybody's in a race you know, it's not a leisurely, like, you know, you do nighttime and you do film where you do four, five, six, seven pages a day. You know, you're doing, I've done 40 pages in a day. I've done wow. more than 40 pages. So what, what it becomes is your, you be, you, it's part of your confidence mechanism, and that is that the muscle of your mind becomes trusting. It, it is able to say, I, I can take all this and remember it for you. And when the time comes, because we're shooting seven scenes back to back, and those directors don't have time to direct us. So you, Milton helped us how to direct ourselves. That's where it became important. 
the only thing those directors did would say, I want you to move to this chair, move to that table, and then turn your back on this. And that was their direction. So you had to fill it up. So the thing about daytime is, how do you fill up what's not there? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I had a very lovely conversation not long ago with Mr. Tristan Rogers. Ah, um, yes. Yeah, I'm in. Tristan. Yeah, he's the the uh, the uh, the princess story with that Liz Taylor came into because that was one of the Cassidines. No, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so wait. So, so yes, I, for those people who don't quite know what you're referring to, go back. So in just General to Hospital, yeah. in the early '80s, there was a story in which Tristan Rogers and um, uh, and a group of uh, oh, what's I've even forgotten his name has uh, been. But that was that was the golden age of daytime, and yeah. there were three brothers that came in, um, and those three brothers were the adversaries to the goody boys, and and Tristan was one of the good ones, and so I was part of that story, and I remember they were having pizza and and General Hospital for lunch at different places, and people would go, and we had millions of people watching us every day. And then Liz Taylor came, which gave it even more gravitas. Right. You know, so it was the Luke and Laura story. And um, and so it was good. It was, you know, the Cassidines were. So from then, that's how I got into Days of Our Lives because uh, Pat Falcon Smith, who was the head writer, asked me if I would join her today. So I left GH when I was the only one who survived um, that storyline. And then I, that was surprised I left them and I went to Days of Our Lives, which became my bread and butter and paid now, for all the wonderful experiences. You know, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking because I know a lot of the actors who are in daytime and they're wonderful actors. And like you said, it's harder than almost anything that you could do as an actor. Just the time, the dialogue. The, 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 but did you ever miss the idea that it wasn't about movies or nighttime? Did you ever want something different? Well, I did, uh, yes, uh, uh, absolutely. Because, you know, when you see De Niro, Pacino, all those wonderful actors that came out of the daytime and went into different aspects of the business. Um, well, I was on set with, so Meg Ryan and Julianne Moore were my co-stars when we yeah, were doing yeah. As the World Turns. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you had a, those who came before you, you know, added up well. But I think it, you know, it is there's something stigmatic about the way people look at actors in daytime, you know, you can turn around and you can see some where a lot of people get their beginnings and and so therefore they judge us on those things. But the really good ones, like I started the Demeras on Days of Our Lives and then they brought in Joseph Moscolo. So we became the ethnic villains on the show uh, against the white folk. And so that was always some really great storylines. But it was sometimes uh, once I got into day. Uh, once I got out of daytime and started doing miniseries and then also getting into uh, Mission Impossible, I realized what a joy it was just to learn six pages. Because when you just got six pages, you can work it like crazy, whereas you're always at the edge in daytime because you still haven't quite gotten there because you're still on the dark lines, but you have what is built in, an attitude that yeah. understands the process when you when you're expressing it but uh yeah there's a big difference but you know 
when I, I was doing, uh, I did a miniseries twice, two miniseries with Gary Nelson, director, and he said to me, where did you get your training from? Because I remember he put me in a desk, had somebody come in to be in for me to interview. I turned sideways as I'm talking to him, looking the other way. And then a m moment where it felt right for a transition, I got up and went to the window. And what that did was the camera had to follow me for the action. So the director came up and said, where did you get your training? And I never realized it. It was just automatic. I said, oh, it's from daytime. He goes, wow, I wish I had more actors like that, where they did the work, you know, because he's so busy doing other things in the production because uh, of the size of the, of the scale. But, yes, it, we, we add a lot to, to acting because we, we – we we help people save money because we don't do lots of takes, you yeah. know. So working with certain directors who only like to do one or two takes, you're a prize for them. What would you say or do you say to young actors today? Um, you know, when I did the wedding, another one, the, uh, the ball the other night, um, I remember um, one of the things I liked, was learning how to tell a story. It's very important because when you're in meetings, you know, when someone goes on and on and on, you want to say, so what happened? Right. That's how you cut to the chase because they don't realize that you're losing them. And I remember a lot of noise going on in an alcove next to the bathroom. And when I came out, it was a group of eight children. One girl who was between nine and 12, and all these little young boys all dressed up in their tuxedos and she in a ball dress. And I said, you know, you're making a lot of noise. And they turned to me and the little girl said, we just loved your story, your speech. Mwah, they went. And I went, it, it stopped me in my tracks because oh. usually you get that from an adult. And then I realized these kids were listening. Right. So the thing is learn how to listen Learn how to write stories so that you give gravitas to the words that you may have to express. Learn how to dress yourself. Imagine you are just a young chick and you have to put your feathers on. As Milton used to say, life is a necklace. Every time you go through transitions, you just add another bead, another bead until it becomes complete, as you become complete. So I would suggest... There are many aspects of becoming an actor, and that is that you must complete who you are. And who you are is very complicated, but you have to learn what is the secret that you brought in about who you are, and then you have to unravel it. And that's the beauty of getting older, because what comes along with it is the wisdom of those experiences. As long as you keep I'm looking good. <laughs> as long as we keep looking good all right so you have taken another aspect of your life and decided to travel around and find lost treasures explain yeah. that to me i said to you earlier um i thought to myself who am i really and i thought well why do i like ancient places because what remains in those ancient places, and I love secrets, is that there is stories there. I, so I, say, I say to people, show me an ancient column and I'll tell you a story. Mm. What I love about being a modern man walking the ancient road is that as I go along, I'm unraveling through my mind and imagination stories 
excuse me. And so um, there's that beauty in discovering mm -hmm. on your terms, not anybody else's. This is not right. a school telling you you've got to learn about this. No, you discover what interests you, what, what, what areas of life interest you. So for me, um, I love archaeology. I love treasures. And if you've ever discovered anything in the earth that hasn't been touched since its beginnings, which could be two, three, four thousand years old, there's something incredibly exciting when you touch, you climb a fence that you're not allowed to, and then you <laughs> dig into the earth, which you're not allowed to, and then you dig in there, and what you find underneath is jewelry, glass, glass uh, bottles from centuries ago, or walking into an ancient tomb in Egypt and discovering within those hands and being the first person after 4,000 years, and you find something in those hands being the first person to touch those ancient treasures. Mm. Something about you links you to the ancient past, and then what does that do for you? It gives you an insight that you are more than just that person, that you've been here before in some way. Mm. that a life is ongoing. It is not just a life and, oh, well, that's it. Like people believe, you know, you just go into the earth and all this. Uh, they don't because we can't know those things. The reason why we don't know those things is because then we wouldn't do the homework. So I believe that when we go on the other side, that there is another side where we develop further and then we come back when there are certain things we, in other words, parts of the soul that hasn't understood God. Mm-hmm. All those links to it. Mm -hmm. So, to me, it's it's a it, life is about finding your treasure trove, and that's why I'm so enlightened by going to places that have history has remained, and how well they did things, and that I can sit there and have a cup of coffee and just imagine. Mm. And that's why I did the podcast because I think I had stories to tell. You know, it's funny, I was lucky enough, I had so many great lessons in school that had nothing to do with school. But one of my teachers along the way divided the class into three. We had to create a civilization and all the things that would go with that, whether it was clay artifacts, the clothes, the style. And then we had to break it all up and stick it in the ground and cover it. And then we'd all switch. And so one, creating a civilization, I remember is what sparked my journey and why I like traveling places that you do, but also then being the one I've never touched something that no one has had not touched in 2000 years. That must be exciting. But I do remember digging up what someone else created as a culture and working very diligently to put that pieces together to imagine what they what that was like. And I have a, I've never really explored my love of archaeology and architecture and certainly Greece. Uh, and I've been over there. I've not been to Egypt. Apparently, I'm very popular in Egypt, but I would love to go um when you, so have you been to where your family originated in greece yes that's not so yes i went once that was enough was it really so mine is ukrainian and now it's not there anymore i always wanted to go see kiev and odessa but uh, history took care of that strange yeah, yeah. when you're in greece which i just was it's my third time there i gotta I, I don't know why i love it there's something about that part of the world what do you feel or what do you imagine when you're in Greece? I feel like I'm with family. I feel like, you know, the food I can order without going, oh, what's that? <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Because people yes. uh, are used to certain things that uh, are not as um, broad-minded. Um, I think 
like when I was staying at the Athens in a hotel in Athens and going up for breakfast and looking outside and seeing the Acropolis and realizing the Parthenon and seeing all that history and thinking, oh my God, that's part of our heritage because my heritage goes back to the 15th century in Greece because mm. it was Constantinople. So um, I, I like, the only thing I don't like is the smoking. Um, I, I, I love the passion. You know, you notice Greeks don't get into fights, really. They scream at each other. It's usually political, but they don't. <laughs> they don't fight. They don't physically fight. It's the below my dignity kind of thing. Um, I like going to monasteries. I love going to Meteora, where the monasteries on top of those monolithic rocks are sitting up there mm -hmm. and have since the 10th century. I like when I went to Mount Athos, which is one of the three peninsulas that jut out in the northern part of Greece where only men are allowed. And, and I would go because I thought, what are they afraid of? Uh, you know, that women, that you couldn't have women, because to me that's not balanced. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like they don't exist. And so you realize when you look at the history and uh, – I've had some great stories there. But, you know, you go and there are 22 monasteries and those men have given up life mm. to concentrate on their myopic, the way they look at things, they pray all day. Um, the only thing is there's a tendency uh, where they think that they're coming because they're coming from a God, they know it all, and you want to show an example of what they have missed by by becoming a monk and mm. it means them to the, for the mothers that the sons have died because the sons will never see their mothers again so what was interesting is when i went there and i'm sitting there and i have 13 monks coming up to me all from australia who'd watched mission impossible while they were staying studying theology so i thought oh okay so they wanted to know they were just normal they wanted to know what was it like doing it you know and you did all those masks and all that so it was kind of interesting to see uh where one monk i went up to and he goes yes he says you know the reason why we've stayed alive is because putin has supported us and given us a lot of money because you know there are sacred things there like the only piece of of, uh, of clothing that belonged to the Virgin Mary which was a which was a belt made of mohair when she is the one who when she was going with John the Apostle to to Cyprus the the, the boat hit the peninsula crashed and landed there. And when she got off, she thought the island, the part, the part of Greece was so beautiful, she called it Mary's Garden. So oh, wow. that's how it all started. And the, the thing was, it started with a monk who in the 8th century was sitting at the top of a cliff and he was looking up and a light hit him and he got this message that he was to build a monastery. So wow. he just got all these monks together and they thought he was crazy, but he said, we have to build this monastery. I've been told by God, we're going to build this monastery. So they proceeded to build this monolithic piece of architecture. And then one of them fell over the cliff all the way down. And they thought, Oh my God, he's dead. You know, he just got up and climbed back up again. Like nothing happened. That's how they knew they're on the right track. So then the rest of the monasteries started to build, you know, so different monasteries around the world, especially at St. Anthony's in, 
in uh, Cairo, um, when that was attacked, um, a lot of those monks left. So they ended up in Mount Athos. And so there's something wow. about it. So I said to the to the uh, one of the priests who thought Putin and how grateful because that the belt saved his daughter's life from cancer. And, you know, you're not allowed to take anything off that island, but they did because of, of him. And so they crossed the Aegean to the mainland. Wow. Took the belt with them, saved her life, and he gave them millions. And so when he said to me that he, you know, they loved Putin, and I said, yes, but you realize he's an assassin. And what did the monk do? He didn't, he just looked at me and walked away. So I thought, oh, you know, there's hypocrisy everywhere. So when you asked me earlier, what is it about you to tell? Find out yeah. what your hypocrisies are. Work them out. Oh, oh, I love that. I love that. Wow. We're going to, we don't have much more time. This has been such a delight and such a great reunion for me personally. Thank you for your time. When, um, are, are you going to stay on the soap opera? Is that going to continue for? You know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure because I'm looking, part of my life is thinking, I want to go back home to Australia. I haven't really? spent enough time with my siblings. And you mm. know how it is when you see people in front of you go and you're in the front line. Yeah. You feel like, do I want to finish my life here in this business still as it's changing and not for me for the better? You know, it's it's awkward to me. And, you, and you're not getting the kind of training, even though there's wonderful actors. I mean, we do have wonderful actors. We can see that. Um, but I, it was part of, well, we were part of the golden age. At the end of the golden age. Yeah. Those before us were extraordinary, you know, that style to them. Um, so I want to go home and sit with my brother and my sisters and my nieces and nephews and and see what they need because you reach a point where um, not much left to learn except what you sustain and what you teach is important, what you impart is important because Let's face it, everybody needs a mentor in life. Yeah. And I found it in Milton, and I found it in, in Catherine Hayward uh, for 12 years, who was my spiritual counselor, and she taught me about meditation, and she taught me about how to find the better side of myself instead of being hard on myself. I'm blessed that I didn't realize the depth of the connection with Milton, so I'm feeling very honored because that was a very important part of my life. Um, children, marriage? No, what? two miscarriages. Um, had relationships over the years. But I realized if I wanted to go to Egypt, I didn't have to ask for permission. You know, it's, you know the thing is, I've, when I see marriages today and I see how bored people have become with each other, or not all cases, but I've seen it in my own families, I mm. think to myself, if someone said, why didn't you eventually get married? And I said, is it the answer to life? And I thought, no, it's not. What, what is my purpose? That's all I can take, be responsible for and be an example of. And that is to take what I've learned and how do I make and take it and make it influential in people who are looking like I did when there was no one around, when what surrounded me was silence. So I would say... Love marriage for people who want it and enjoy it. I love having affairs as I've had over the years, but I love my freedom. 
I see that. I see that. It's, it, I look at you spiritually and I knew the answer, even though I, I didn't technically know, but it feels that's how your spirit is exploring itself. And yeah. it seems completely right for you. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it doesn't, I don't get depressed because gorgeous thing about being alone sometimes is that you, you've learned to live with what you've discovered and it's not bad. You know what I mean? It's not, I don't, I don't, I'm not a liar. I like to tell the truth. I get into trouble because I confront when I hear the crap when people do, you know, like we're seeing so much from politicians these days. It just drives me up the bloody wall on the way they, they just, people fall for the for lies. I thought, you people, haven't you learned? Can't you listen? Aren't you listening to all the lies that are being said today? But they don't. And they're followers. And we're not followers. You're not a follower. You no, know, never have people. been. No, never have been. You want to be examples of what you're doing. And, you know, you want to inspire people. That's so much more rewarding than than being a victim to things, you know. I will tell you, I think that's the irony. I didn't know growing up that you could speak. I remember when I watched one of my, I've been an actress for many years. I mean, Lily Tomlin let me do her one woman show. There I am for two and a half hours doing Search for Signs, playing 15 oh. characters. I know, oh, yeah. that's who I know. I'm like, I, I have oh, a review that calls me a virtuoso. And I'm thinking, wow, Forbes, you must be very talented to be able to do that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I might be. And I, I watched a speaker and I thought, oh, that looks really interesting. You could use all the talents and the instrument that you have, but I've got nothing to say. Hmm. And that became a journey of let's go uncover or discover or invent what you want to talk about. What is the stories that you want to tell and go out and live your life? And that's how this whole part of it evolved. And I will tell you, for me, the blend of it is being able to say the words that inspire you the most with a set of skills is like, ooh, this is good. Yeah, yeah. That's why I love this podcast. It's nothing like being in a in a soundproof room, reading your material and telling people great stories. Right, right. You know where I mean? can people wait, where can people find your podcast and what is it on called? Spotify. On Spotify. It's called The Lost Treasures. There okay. are four parts to it. I'm doing a biblical story now. So that's been an interesting thing because that would be another session about what I discovered in Jerusalem. Um, I'm game for I'm game for part two. <laughs> <laughs> I've had some incredible, you know, amazing journeys, and um, so I thought, you know, there are certain parts of the biblical stories that have been presented as postcards. Mm. The the history is not really what happened. It's just somebody took a picture, and that became history. That became our 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 life. So I'm at the point where I want to say no, that didn't happen. This is what. So that's what I'm I'm writing. But the the four podcasts, they're great they're great treasure stories because I act them out in a sense and because I did a lot of study on Schliemann um and I studied 60,000 documents in 2 weeks and took all the notes down and read his diaries and read nine books on his life before I uttered the words of this and I thought, wow, this is great. So I'm going to do something with it. And that's how the podcast came. I will, I will absolutely help promote what you're up to. Uh, just been quite the treasure. How would you like people to remember you? Well, I don't, I don't, it's like my dinner parties. Nobody leaves uh, except that they had a great evening. Mm. That what you gave of yourself 
resonated. They felt embraced. Mm-hmm. They felt loved. Mm-hmm. They felt they'd enter a special part of, of their lives in a special place that they would in some way want to replicate it for themselves. So I like to be an example of things done well. And um, I don't I don't want to excuse it. I don't want to lie. I just want to say this is how it was. And this is how it is. Kind of extraordinary. What a beautiful blessing. This has been so, so wonderful. Oh, thank you. It was nice to meet you after all these years. You know, I always remembered you because you're such an attractive woman and you'd come into class always dressed well. You know, you always had a style about you that I thought, oh, this woman is is already evolved and this woman's going to be very successful. You had a good sense of, of self. You know, it's been an evolution. I was, the other day, someone said, how did you get to be so confident? I said, well, you go through a life of absolute trauma, tragedy, survive it, and continue on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you did, and you did. And, and you know, the way you groom yourself, you know, you're very stylish and, and you look successful so that when people see you, the picture there is, I want to be like that. I want that energy. So congratulations to you as well. Well, you know, it's, that's, that's very sweet because I can remember when I talk about being little, looking at the stylish women, the Gloria Swansons, or at least the, the Audrey Hepburns and the Catherine Hepburns and the Jane Fondas of our, the era that I grew up watching television, and they had this joie de vivre, but I would have loved to have been you. I wanted to be James Bond. I loved the, the action, the hero. I lived a life like James Bond. I've been wildly adventurous because that seemed interesting to me. It never seemed enough to be the Bond girl. So what what a fun life. All right, you know what? If I'm out in LA before you leave back to Australia, I would love to have coffee. Uh, and if there's any way I can support what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, I'll see you right here on the Forbes Fact. We focus on health, wealth, and happiness. And can you tell by the silly smile on my face? I'm quite happy. Bye, everybody. Thank you for making the Forbes Factor an important part of your week. Be sure to join Forbes Riley again next Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you again soon.